Hey friends, in this episode, I was very fortunate to connect with Vishwas Pachuri, a fantastic facilitator of Pune, India. The first question I have is more to do with the why, the ungoogleable information about you, Vishwas, is why do you do the work that you do? So I'm going to just take away the cliches from it. Very clearly, I like what I do. Very clearly, I do it because I want to do it. It would be unfair to say that I don't care about what other people think. So let me put it a little differently. I think uh, in the spirit of what I do, if I like what I do, I will bring an energy and a vigor to it that that will invite people into that space. And it has always worked. The days that I was off and I started something, uh, in my early practice years, if I was, you know, had an argument with somebody or uh, I was upset about something and I walked into that space, I very clearly saw that it affected everybody else as well. I quickly learned to bring myself into the spirit of why it is that I do what I do very quickly. So there have been times when uh, I walked into a corporate training program and they've committed their time and we've traveled miles to get in space. And just because I'm not, something happened to me that morning and I wasn't okay with it and I was upset. And I just walked out and I said, there was no way I was going to start it in that mood. And I just uh, gathered the group and I said, look, you know what? I'm not feeling up to it right now. And uh, we're going to start the program. My colleagues are going to help us begin what it is that we're here for. I'm just going to take a couple of hours and get back. And I took those two hours. I knew I had a responsibility. I knew I needed to commit myself to it completely and bring myself back. And I did that. And it went very well. I think... It was hugely intentional. I didn't realize it then. I learned the language of what I do much later, right? Mm-hmm. When you do stuff that you, that feels appropriate at a particular time, and then you find the language of it later. So it might sound like I'm coming from jargon, but I discovered that what drove me that day was a great intentionality. I just thoroughly enjoy and immerse myself in what I do, and I make a very, very good expectation that if I'm there completely, then everybody else will be there. And it has never failed. Never. I'm just waiting for that day when it doesn't work. And I don't know if I'll find it. And which is why that whole conversation in that address, in the Kirtan address, was about let's look at what we are doing for ourselves first. Mm-hmm. That's critical because we're bringing ourselves into that space and we affect it in a huge way. And people sensed it. We are animals, right? So the word I would use is they smell it. When people clearly do not buy into the thing that they're trying to sell, where they're facilitating it and their energy, everything that they're putting off, their pheromone of, of what they're doing is completely counter to what they're trying to portray. And it just doesn't work. And on the flip, you see those people who can walk into a room, energize a room, just by their presence because, not because of the words they're saying, but because of the fact that they love 
what they do. And I think that we we are both fortunate and anyone listening who's doing this work is extremely fortunate that we have a work that is in itself playful, in itself fun and engaging. And we are very fortunate to say that we get to be a part of it on a regular basis. Well, this weekend I walked into a group and uh, I laughed for six hours and then I left. <laughs> and I think I taught them something. Or I think no, no, it was no, so. No, no, you didn't teach them anything. Yeah. You just, you were just who you were. They learned whatever they had to. I'm guessing they picked that up too. Early on, I would go to conferences and I would come home and my wife would say, Tell me what you learned. And I said, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> I just remember it was fun. And there was an experience that was, uh, that I could not explain. So you did. Yeah. You know that you did. Mm. You said it was fun. And if, if somebody said, okay, I can see that you're still in that fun zone right now. But after a couple of hours, when you can articulate it, I'd love to know what you got from it. Because it wasn't just fun. And I think, I think that's the differentiator, that we tend to look at what we call feedback or that form or whatever at the end of something that you do as the truth. But the truth is going to take 10 years to emerge for that person. As it did for you, I'm, I'm guessing, after that experience. And uh, I think we forget that. I think maybe it's a generational thing also, but we're on that constant desire for immediate feedback. Like the like button, the flicking, yeah, all of the social media stuff. It's just <clears throat> the immediacy of it. You forget that, you know, the person that originally taught me some of this stuff or invited me into this space probably has no awareness of the impact that they had on me. <laughs> so it's maybe a good thing too, because I know that over the years I've met so many people and I've always, even when I teach, I tell them that the course may be over, but I'm still a real. And uh, people reach back and they tell me wonderful stories of uh, what some obscure little thing I said changed their life. I'm saying, God, I, I don't ever want to plan. How, and, and, and how could you ever live up to the expectation of that? <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to keep planning for those life-changing moments that you've got to have. You've got to have them written in. I write them into my agenda. Every other activity is, this is life-changing. <laughs> uh, so let's let's take a few steps back in your your career and in even how you got into this industry can you identify a moment that's for you was like this is this is it for me this is where i need to be this is what i need to devote my time to no i've tried finding yeah. that moment uh but they'd be in you know it's it's like it's like you attend something and then the you find validation and that validation may come five years later. You say, wow, that was brilliant. So I think what happened with me was, I, I, I told the story during my address that uh, my first, uh, but I, I wouldn't say that, I don't know if there was a moment when I said, this is what, what I want to dedicate my life to. I have never said that about, my, about what I do because I don't see it as work. Uh, I've never been in doubt about this question of well, wanting to be in or out has never occurred. The only thing that has ever occurred to me is what else can I do? And that's at, at a personal level. But if there was a moment that opened my eyes, it was actually two. It was a story I told uh, the address about uh, uh, that doll 
being a hole in a wall that separates two spaces. And I was one person outside and another person inside. And why am I finding that idea so crazy? Because everybody else seems to do it. And why am I finding such a big struggle? So that separation from being who I thought I was and who I had to be, or I thought I had to be, kind of merging over a period of time and becoming one so that, and I, and mind you, I've been asked to leave places because of that. <laughs> and those have been brilliantly educational moments because you think you're wanted and somebody comes along and says, hey, you know what? You're not wanted. Leave. I invite people to get sacked at least once in their life. But uh, if there was a moment, it was this 11th graders, teenagers, wild, not wanting to study, came from rich families, took them out for a week, and when they and uh, took them up into the Himalayas for a week, and we came back, and they had changed. And, and people noticed it. And they asked me, what did you do to them? I said, I took them for a trip. He said, no, 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 we're not talking about that. We're talking about why are they smiling so much? Why are they talking so much? Why are they being so pleasant? Why are they accepting everything uh, we ask them to do? What's the story there? I have no idea. But the realization of what that experience did for them came to me many years later when I had decided to make play a part of my life. So if that's a defining moment, then I don't, it wasn't a moment. It was, it was a moment that lasted three years. You know, I ended up working at High Five after seven years of doing sort of some of this stuff and then also not at the same time and then just slowly got rid of the stuff that wasn't bringing me as much joy. I was working outdoor education and uh, there was, you know, forest ecology and the scientific study of, of the outdoor world and then ornithology, the study of birds. And, you know, I would get rid of some of that stuff slowly from what I was doing and uh, almost like chiseling a, a marble piece of marble and finding the statue underneath or something. And then finding the thing that actually I got most joy out of, which was just having meaningful conversations with participants and having them have these aha moments and I just kept working to figure out if I could do that as a thing. Yeah. Can I can I share with you an incident that I mm. think affected me very deeply? The funny thing is it has to do with Project Edmund. I scraped to save up to in 99 to go, come to the U.S. I was attending, I was going to attend an advanced course in facilitation at Project Adventure. They very kindly gave me a scholarship and I saw the story. The story is this. There was a motley group of about eight of us. We were all more than 40 seasoned, experienced, adventurers, educationists, call us what you want. And when we met our instructor, there was this natural feeling, this kid's got to teach us something. I still remember his name. I haven't been able to locate him. His name was Adam. I don't know his second name. But that guy, over, the, over that period of six days, he had us on our toes. Because the whole game was, how, do, how are we going to outguess what this guy throws at us? And we couldn't. And we couldn't for six days. I said, wow, this is something I 
have to be able to do. When I think back upon it, I say, was it anything he did? So this is my uh, older self trying to give it meaning. And I think what he did was is critical to the work we do. Is that he stayed with us. He presented the opportunities. He did what he was supposed to. And then he stepped back and watched the fun. He didn't come with an agenda of which questions to ask and how where to take it or how to take it. He just hung out there, smiled right through the day, laughed with us, made us look like monkeys. But he was he was young, all of 26, I remember that. And the energy he brought was so non-threatening. And have always, over the years, aspired to, to become that in my memory of Now, if you ask the other participants, was it so? I have no idea and it doesn't matter. It's what I got from it. And for me, in terms of my own practice, I think that was certainly one of those defining moments. You know, when I started a high five, I was 26. So I would have been that age when I started. And I do remember the extreme anxiety I'd feel leading advanced programming and and seeing people come through the door and go, they've been doing this longer than I've been alive. So how is this going to go? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think that, yeah, the, this, the stepping back and letting the group, that is an advanced skill set that is often not seen when I'm teaching and I'm seeing that in facilitators, they've got the agenda, they've got, they've written down the reflective questions they're going to ask, which is before they've even done the art, the, the activities. And I'm like, really, you, you know what questions you're going to ask about the activity before you've even run it. Right, right, that's, right, that's, right, you have some sort of a psychic ability that's way beyond myself. But I think this leads into, there was a, you, you brought up in, in your, in your dress. And I, I wrote down this line, you said, the failure in the practice of experiential education and you led into talking about reflection and used an analogy of of the bus is this something that you've recently come to this this notion or is it something you've held on to for a long time and this is this is your philosophy on experiential education that it has to be in the hands of the participants i think i have uh, sensed it for many years that came from my Awareness that when I went into something, I had an agenda. And each time I tried to get to that agenda, uh, there was always something that uh, derailed it. So what's the story there? It seemed like as a facilitator, I was at odds with where the group was. And uh, it doesn't make sense because then it becomes the, the traditional education pattern, which is I know you don't and, I'm, and my job take you that. Once I was able to recognize some of the truth behind that, and one of those pieces was that as experiential educators, we have great power. When groups come to us, we get them to play with stuff that they've never played with. Toys, ropes, strings, and you know, we make it exciting, yes. But uh, I think we do great injustice to the fact that they're never going to be able to solve a damn thing. When I was able to recognize that and move away from it and say, that, hey, maybe this is not about them being able to solve it us. Then, what is this about? 
because it's so easy to measure them, right? And to judge them on the basis of uh, what they do and it's always a failure. Now I needed to, I needed a new lens. And that new lens was, first of all, who is this about? If it's about me, I knew inside that I was failing miserably. Because I couldn't take them to where I wanted to because uh, they were not ready. Mm-hmm. And not because they knew less or more, but we just knew different things. Okay, great. So let's put that aside. If I put my agenda aside, then what do we have? Then the only thing we have is them. And if it's about them, how do I lend richness to what they experience rather than what I want them to experience? I think that changed a lot for me. The focus was then always about them. And when that happened, it became easier for me to, uh, it's not the nicest way of putting it, but let go of the power. But the truth is we have immense power as educators and we can use it or not use it. And ever since, it's changed the way I see things. And regardless of whether it's a two-hour gig I'm doing or it's a five-day thing, I will always invest at least a third of the time in that exploration and discovery of who are you? Where are you from? Why are you here? What's the most important thing? And gather that in as individuals and as groups before I try and do anything that might be bad. Yeah, it leads into the philosophy of connection before content. I have come to this place where I believe facilitation cannot be taught. So here's what I do. I teach a, a year-long course, a weekend, a month. So it's 16 hours a month, and then they go off and do stuff, and then they come back uh, for nine. So, so it's a nine-month program, of which two sessions, seven sessions are in classroom, and two sessions are outdoor. The first outdoor session I run. The second outdoor, which is like their graduation ceremony, they run. For the past few years, I've been doing something really cool from day one. I invite them to run an activity and facilitate it. Day one, hour three, I will open it up and say, hey, any of you know activities? Okay, well, are you willing to do this? And then they do it. And you know how it's going to go. New peer group, unknown, nervous, doubting themselves, they don't know me as an entity. They're still discovering me. And at that point, I realized that I needed to be really gentle. The issue was not showing them what they or how they did. It was to gather all the things that, was, that were happening to them. And what I would do is bring their attention to just two things. One is thinking in action, and the other is thinking on action. So they're running, so they set up the activity, they give the brief, the group's playing around, and then I watch them. And after about five minutes, I'll walk up to them very quietly and ask them, what are you thinking about? And 
they're nervous. They don't know what they're going to ask. They can't see what's going on with the group. They're comparing it to what they think is the right answer. And and it's a mess. And I just leave it there. So I just ask them. If they share it, great. If they don't, that's fine. Then when the activity is over, before they can get into anything, I will walk up to them or draw them aside again and say, now that you've seen what they've done, now what are you thinking about? Now what it does is it creates an awareness of what's going on with them. And then at the end of it, if they're willing, I will dissect for them how what they were thinking and how they were thinking and how they were feeling at both these times affected what they were going to do and ask. For many, it was a slap in the face. But the truth was only between them and me. And they had the freedom to either accept it or not. But it was kind of a mirror that they're looking at and saying, God, look how messed up I am. And I'm not judging them. I have nothing to say about it. But if they're willing, I will get them to often share with the group what their struggle was. And I think for me, I began to understand that that was a beautiful place to begin to come to terms with the reality of what facilitation is where they are. Period. Now, here's the thing. The only place to go with that, uh, from there for them is what they want to be. And that's their truth. I, I wouldn't dare step in and spoil it and say, you should have done this, you couldn't. Oh, it's all, you know, should and could are words that are banned in my classroom. Should, would, trust, must, communication, collaboration, coordination, cooperation, all banned. <laughs> cannot use them cannot use the word we either which means that every time somebody chooses to say something that you know that we this we that hiding behind the we I said no is it your truth or is it somebody else's because I'm going to ask the rest of the classroom is this what you feel and they say you know what it sounds like right but I said no if it's your truth feel free to say I and I think these these little pieces have gone a long way in helping people come to that place where they begin to sense that they will never be enough. But in a very gentle, nice way. I know I'm not enough. Even today when I facilitate, there will be moments where I say, damn, that was a good question. But the rest of the time, Constantly looking at what I'm doing, how I'm feeling, what I'm sensing, how I'm responding, and that, how do you teach that? Because that is facilitation. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about, thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving. I think I'll the guy. <laughs>